Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens.
Heavenly Father, we have been brought home by your mercy reaching out and for bearing that which we deserved and your grace reaching further out and bestowing upon us that which we did not deserve. And we are thus gathered today, sought and bought by your redemptive work through Jesus Christ, whom we have heard in the gospel, his call, and we have come, and he has forgiven our sins. And your spirit has been bestowed upon us, and our souls have been restored, and we are now reconciled. And so we worship. We lift up your name. We behold with marvel your character, your goodness, your supremacy. And we are further humbled to know that you are ours and we are yours. Be with us during this hour of worship that our souls may truly worship you in spirit and in truth and in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. As we prepare towards the end of our service to come to the Lord's table, it's fitting for us to remind ourselves and to declare publicly how it was that Jesus approached his cross and what it was that he accomplished through it. And so let's profess to God and to one another what we believe about Christ's work. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Amen. You may be seated. We just read that by Jesus' wounds, we have died to sin and now live to righteousness. That is true of us as Christians. Death no longer and sin no longer claim victory over us. We are counted righteous before God through Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, while those judicial things are true of us in God's holy sight, we continue to struggle against the sin that so closely lingers in our lives. The temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil are real, and we must admit that we need to confess the ways in which we fall short and lean upon the mercies of God in Jesus Christ through his spirit to live unto righteousness as we've been called. And so let's together publicly as well as privately confess our sins. Lord God, eternal and almighty Father, 
We acknowledge and confess before your holy majesty that we are poor sinners, conceived and born in guilt and corruption, prone to do evil, unable of ourselves to do any good, who by reason of our depravity transgress without end your holy commandments. Therefore, we have drawn upon ourselves by your just sentence, condemnation, and death. O most merciful Father, grant us the daily increase of the grace of your Holy Spirit, that acknowledging from our inmost heart our own unrighteousness, we may be touched with sorrow that shall work true repentance, and that your Spirit, mortifying all sin within us, may produce the fruits of holiness and righteousness well-pleasing in your sight. And now hear these words of assurance and pardon of the gospel to those who repent of their sins and trust by faith in Christ alone for their salvation. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. seated.
Please pray with me. Our God and our Father, we cry out to you this morning, rejoicing that you rule, rejoicing, rejoicing that you have all power and all authority, that you, the triune God who have existed since time began, you have loved us. You have called us to be your own. You have made us your children by your grace. And we can cry out to you as our God and as our Father. We praise you that you sent Jesus Christ not to come for those who were healthy and righteous, but to come for us who were sick and sinful, heavy laden, lost, ruined by the fall. We praise you that in your grace you pursue us, that you pursue us even while we were still sinners. Father, we pray that you would help us to sense and to feel and to rejoice in the reality that you have come for us lost sheep. You have pursued us as a good and faithful shepherd and that your faithfulness to us not only frees us from the curse of sin and death, but it extends into every pore and into every facet of our lives here on this earth until you call us home. Your power and your mercies and your faithfulness extends to every need, to every illness, to every broken relationship, to every worry and fear. And so we bring them before you this morning. We confess our weaknesses and our needs. We pray for those among us who are sick. We pray for your mercies. We pray for those who are without work or in financial need that you would provide as you clothe the flowers of the field and the birds of the air. May your faithfulness continue to us, your people. Help us to see where those needs exist and consider where we may give and help to provide. Father, we pray for this church, for Park City's Presbyterian Church, a simple and humble expression of what you are doing around the world in in building your church through your people. Father, we pray that we would more and more be faithful to you in the place that you have called us. Help us to be committed to your word and to the preaching of the gospel to all our hearts. Help us to be depending on your Holy Spirit and and looking and leaning into ways in which you call us to to serve. Grant us wisdom, O Lord. Father, we pray that you would make us a generous people. You have lavished upon us every grace. You have given us so much in your Son, Jesus Christ, and materially in this world. And so we pray that we would be a generous people. Even now, as we give tithes and offerings, may we give with joy and with gratitude and with the hope that you will multiply the little we give to your kingdom and that you would build your church and glorify your name until the ends of the earth. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, who has loved us and freed us from our sins by his precious blood. In his name we pray, amen.
For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. The peace of the Lord be with you always. I invite you to stand and greet one another with the peace of Jesus Christ. First Samuel chapter 24, we welcome you to the service, especially if you're visiting with us. What you have before you is about 95% of the chapter. There are two more verses to the chapter. It's not printed in your bulletin. I'm going to read the whole chapter, so be prepared for the long reading. Life of King David, before he was king. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not prevent them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, 
See the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me because of you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? And after whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. And as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good where I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me in your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, well, let him go away safe. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home and David and his men went up to the stronghold. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So David was just playing his harp in the beautiful major key that lifts the soul with an elevated key signature and with a good stroke and with a fine lilt and with a happy melody. And Saul hurls a spear at him and almost pins him to the wall. David flees. He goes home to his wife, Macaw, the younger daughter of Saul, beautiful, and she loved David. And she came home and she found out through her brother and others that her dad, Saul, was going to try to kill David. What a change from the way Saul had treated David after he had killed Goliath. And she found out they were actually coming to get him to seize him at home. Saul had dispatched the assassin's team and so Macaw helped David escape. And when they came to her, she said, he threatened my life, what could I do? He was going to kill me, I had to let him go. And David, in these next few chapters, as you read along of the story, he ran everywhere, young, confused, frustrated, frightened, and yet filled with the Spirit of God and a temperament that had God had turned his way and a heart for God and a man who had already enjoyed the manifest approbation of God's people in every way. And he began to flee. And if you read the story, he went to Samuel. What's going on here? You know Saul, you know me. 
Why is Saul seeking my life? What have I ever done? I've served him faithfully. I've been an officer in his troops. I have actually gone and conquered his enemies. I met the bride price for his daughter, the foreskins of a hundred Philistines. I brought him two hundred. I've played music for him. I've served in his army. I've been a captain over a thousand. My best friend is his son. Tell me, Samuel, what is going on? Samuel could provide some, but not much comfort. And David went from the prophet to the priest. He went down to Nob, a little town that was filled with priests, where the high priest dwelled, a descendant of Eli. And there he was among the priests for a while. And the priest helped him. Ahimelech gave him the things he needed, food for him and for his men. David confessed that his men were pure, that they were holy, that they were ready for the showbread because they had not defiled themselves in any way. David was beginning to understand holiness and righteousness. And so he left the priest with Goliath's sword as his weapon. Saul pursued. Saul put out one after another reconnaissance teams and spy dispatches to find where King, where, where David that was going to try to find him. The only way David could get away from that was to go down into the land of the Philistines. He went to Gath, the hometown of Goliath. Achish, the king there, took him in and gave him some refuge and gave him some protection. But then when they began to talk about who this David was exactly, he had to fake madness, insanity to get out of there. And Achish says, get this madman out of my house, get him out of my town. So David, one more time, had to flee. He'd gone to the prophet. He'd gone to the priest. He'd gone to an enemy. And he goes to Jonathan. He seeks out Jonathan. And we see David fleeing and leaving this one and going to that one, trying to find some comfort, trying to find some solace, trying to find some protection, trying to find some understanding of what's going on. Why is Saul pursuing me? Why does he seek my life? And it's during this period of running and fleeing that David begins to grow spiritually immensely. The Lord had him in the fire and was purifying him and bringing him to a knowledge and an understanding of God and God's ways. David had a proclivity in his heart toward God, but God was reaching as David leaned toward God. God reached and drew him in and was teaching him about himself. God was shepherding David. David would later say, the Lord is my shepherd. Because it was during this period of time when he couldn't find hope in the prophet, couldn't find resolve with the priest, couldn't find help from the prince, and certainly was not one bit comfortable in the presence of his enemy. Where could I go but to the Lord? That's what David's learning. David's heart is changing. David's spiritual maturity is coming about. God's working on David. 
probably like he didn't work on anyone else until maybe Christ himself. David's in the wilderness enduring the temptations. David's heart, which was a sweet heart of a poet, the sweet psalmist of Israel is how he is eulogized later on when he passes away. The sweet psalmist of Israel was also a savage warrior. And God was reconciling and turning his heart more and more toward himself. David learned that the hope is not in the prophet, the hope is not in the priest, the hope is not in the prince. The hope is in the Lord. And David had learned a lot of lessons. He had faced a lot of tests. And just before this particular episode, Saul had gotten his 3,000 men and while he was fighting other enemies, Saul had put on the top of his agenda the pursuit of David. And he took his 3,000 best warriors and went after David and had him surrounded on both sides of a mountain. And really all they had to do was to constrict the ranks and close in on David and pinch him down and eliminate him because all David had at the most was 600 men, usually three to 400. They were mighty men, but they were a motley crew. <laughs> Bible says the people that had come to David were those that were running from the law, those that were in debt, those that had been outcast from their own communities, and those that were embittered. David had a pretty tough flock of men to shepherd but they were loyal to David and they were fierce fighters and they were learning along with David the ways of the Lord as David was teaching them. But now they're trapped in a pincer movement on the mountain and all Saul had to do at that point was to bring in the archers. The tribe of Benjamin was famous for its archers. The best shots in Israel were the archers of Benjamin. And they got word, Saul got word that the Philistines were attacking some of the key towns further north and he had to leave and go fight the Philistines. And David was delivered and he called that place the Rock of Escape. The Lord had miraculously delivered David from the hand of Saul. And that's when David knew like he never knew before, even when he fought Goliath, he knew the battle was the Lord's. He was going to need to wait upon the Lord, trust in the Lord. And this lesson fresh upon him, our chapter begins, Saul returned from following the Philistines. As soon as he got his business taken care of with the Philistines, he's out to get David again. And he takes 3,000 of his chosen men and goes to seek David. And this time pursues him all the way down to En Gedi. And Gedi was a district down on the Dead Sea coast. And there were mountains there, porous mountains. And in those mountains were deep caves. There's a network of caves all through there. And it was a place where only the bravest mountain goats could survive. And it was called, in fact, the Wild Goats Rocks. And he had gotten word that that's where David was and he was pursuing him. And you know the story probably pretty well. He 
goes into the cave to relieve himself. And unbeknownst to him, David and his few hundred men were ensconced deep within the recesses of the cave, back in the darkness and in the silence. And David sees Saul, and he's right there. And he's unaccompanied by Abner or any of his bodyguards. Saul's right there. Saul's vulnerable. He's indisposed. There's just not much reason why David should just go take his life. Not only that, David has a group of men with him. A group of men that not too long ago had been pinned down and was facing their death as they looked up at the archers of Benjamin knowing that this was it. And now here's their leader, King David, having the opportunity to take out the king and the commander of the armies of Israel. They formed a cheerleading squad. Not only that, they became theologians. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Remember the Lord said, I'm going to deliver Saul into your hands. And there's no record, by the way, of the Lord ever saying that, but it's probably easy for them to believe that. And you're going to be king, and here's your opportunity. All you got to do is take one good swipe at the king. You can use anything you want. You can use a spear. You can use a sword. You can use your bare hands. You can use your slingshot. There he is. Take him. We got him now. And the scripture says that David, it said he persuaded, I think is the way the text says. Is that the word it's used? I've seen so many different words that are really kind of, uh, uh, kind of softened. Uh, yeah, David persuaded his men, verse 7, with these words and did not prevent the, permit them to attack Saul. The language is actually a lot rougher than that. David virtually had to fight his men off one by one. Hand-to-hand -hand combat with threats. He was in a desperate fight against his own men because they wanted to take care of Saul. And you can't blame them a bit. If I'd have been one of David's men, that's exactly what I would have wanted to do. But something had happened. When David had set forth first to strike Saul, instead of striking Saul, he just took a corner of his royal robe and sliced it off and carried it back with him. And the men didn't want him bringing back a piece of the robe. They wanted him to bring back Saul's head. But when he cut that robe, the Bible says that his heart struck him. After David's heart struck him because, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. His first impulse was to strike. But apparently God had stayed His hand so that He just got that one little piece of the robe instead of Saul's torso. And it hit him. This is not the godly thing to do. This is not the right thing to do. And I would submit to you that this, if you read the story, you'll find this is maybe David's most crucial moment 
in his life before he became king. It was at this point when he said, I will be godly before I will be king. I will do what God requires and wants of me before I will ascend the throne. I would rather be right than royal. David knew the commandments of God. He knew this was unmitigated, cold-blooded murder. They were not on the battlefield. This was not just war. This would be an assassination of the Lord's anointed. And David never lost his affection for Saul. Saul was the king of Israel. Saul was royal in his eyes. He was the father of his best friend, Jonathan. He was his father-in-law. David had been in the royal family himself by marriage and had inherited wonderful things. Saul had never been anything but good to David in terms of David's position. He was a lowly shepherd boy and he ascended to these powerful things at a very young age, probably in his early 20s. He's in the household and he loved Saul and he had ministered to Saul. He had added a chorus. He had softened his tone. He had sweetened his music as he played in Saul's presence to soothe Saul's troubled spirit. David loved Saul. He calls him my father. He never thought of him in any other way. And why his own father would be abusing him, he would be terrorizing him and threatening him so. And David knew to do this deed to his father would be ungodly. It'd be in violation of everything that the God he was coming to know and love stood for. And so he didn't do it, even though all the circumstances said he should have. <laughs> his men were encouraging him to do it. This is where David began to move into immense spiritual stature. David did not become king of Israel simply by becoming powerful and fighting Philistines. He became king of Israel because God wanted a king after his own heart, someone that would reflect the glory of God. And here's what king, here's what young David knew. He knew that the king must reign in righteousness. The first requirement of the vassal of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, is righteousness and holiness. Right standing before God and right living before men. And David knew that's what he had to do. That's what he had to be. So he faced that awful temptation, got through that crisis moment by the mercy and grace of God, and he realized that I will become king, but it'll be in God's work done God's way. That's what Saul wouldn't do. Saul didn't wait six days on Samuel to show up and give a sacrifice. You remember that? And here David is willing to wait on the Lord an indefinite, indeterminate, almost insecure amount of time. But David trusted the Lord to bring him and to take care of Saul in Saul's own way. And this is where David began to do the things that later became taught by the Lord 
and taught even very clearly by the apostles. This is how the godly man lives. St. Paul, Romans chapter 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Echoes of the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, and then he quotes the passage out of Deuteronomy, and I'll Instead of quoting Paul, quoting Deuteronomy, I'll read you Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 32. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. For the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate His people and have compassion on His servants. David hadn't read Romans, but he had read Deuteronomy. He had also read the application of that is actually out of the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 19, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's what David's learning. David is coming to what we would think of today as a full Christian maturity. It takes discernment. Think about how much discernment it took at that moment to decide whether this was the opportunity the Lord had laid before him. This was his moment. This was his day. Or that no... This was wrong in and of itself and should not be done regardless of the promise and the circumstances. The Lord will make the way in a later day. And that's what you see in the, in the conversation when, when Saul leaves the cave after a, a while, David steps out. And the rest of the chapter is David making a speech and Saul making a speech. And just let me note a couple of things about the speeches. First of all, David called to Saul. He says, the Lord, my king, my Lord. David bowed. He paid homage. And then he had the question that had been on his heart ever since he had started running. Why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Why are you listening to your people that are telling lies about me? David could have added, I didn't listen to my men when they told me to kill you. Why are you listening to your men when they're telling you to kill me? 
Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave me into your hand in the cave, and, and some told me to kill you, but I spared you. He said, I will not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Even to cut off the corner of the robe struck David's conscience. Now here's a conscience that is softened and informed. Here's a heart that according to Jeremiah and Ezekiel has been made alive and sensitive by the Word of God. You notice in the Levitical passage, the Lord reminded them after the commandment to love their neighbor. He said, I am the Lord. Knowing the Lord moves us to behave correctly. Right belief will influence right behavior. And that's what's happened to David. David has come to know the Lord. He's come to know the grace of God, the mercy of God, the ways of God. And he is behaving in that light. He is walking in the light of the Lord. His actions are guided by a lamp and a light to his feet and a lamp to his pathway. David would write about everything that happened in the wilderness in some psalm or another. One of the things he writes about are several psalms that are called the imprecatory psalms. It means the psalms where David calls down curses, tells the Lord to smash the teeth of his enemy, tells the Lord to kill his enemy and send his enemy to hell, and on and on and on. And some of us read with our we read that and we say, oh, that's so savage. That's so terrible. How would you, why would you do that? Well, that's because David knows vengeance belongs to the Lord. And so if he really wants vengeance and wants let the Lord take care of it. The proper place to take your vengeance is not into your own hands, but to the Lord. Let the Lord do it. Why? Because both David and Saul talk about the ultimate justice of the Lord. David several times talks about the Lord will be the judge and he will give sentence between me and you. The Lord will judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. It is justice, it is righteousness that David is pursuing. He's seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. It's not just to have the kingdom of God, it's to have righteousness. And that's where we hear David. He's concerned of righteousness, justice, keeping the law. He quotes another proverb here about how wickedness comes from the wicked. In other words, as you are is how you do. Jesus said, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. David's understanding these great psychological principles of, of spiritual growth. But listen to King Saul. He, first of all, he's, he's an emotional wreck anyway, so he's, he's all torn up when he realizes what had happened. He has this sick feeling that he, David could have killed him and didn't. He realizes how bad he looks in front of both armies. And uh, he's a basket case anyway. And so he weeps and cries and prays. But here's a hard heart. This is not any repentance here. And he, he acknowledges a few things. But notice what he says. Swear to me before the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me or that you will not destroy my name. All King Saul's worried about is himself. Himself and his stuff, his name and his righteousness and his reputation. And so all he wants is David to, 
to spare. Remember, he had done that before. Remember when he had messed up so royally and Samuel had confronted him with the bleeding of the sheep and he said, well, let's just, we'll make a sacrifice, but you stand here and, and support me, make me look good in front of the people. And that was an occasion in which Samuel did what? He tore off a piece of the robe. And tearing of the robe, tearing of the garment is symbolic in Scripture. It's used several more times in the history of Israel to show that the kingdom has been divided. And the kingdom, there's a sense in which David did lay claim to there and fulfill the prophecy on that occasion, but he didn't take the life of Saul. Now let me tell you as I close what happened. The reason I went ahead and read these extra two verses is, here's my little verse. I always find a little phrase in these, in these chapters that just sort of hit me. And uh, I'm accused by some of my, my more theologically persuaded brothers that I'm reading something into the text that's not there. And I think, well, if you read Christ into the text, I think Christ will forgive you <laughs> if, it's, if it's there. This is verse 22, the last verse. And David swore this to Saul that he would not you know, injure him in any way. Then Saul went home and David and his men went up to the stronghold. Didn't say which one. He had several. He ended up the stronghold was Jerusalem eventually. David and his men went up to the stronghold. That's what I'm going to advise you to do this morning. Go up to the stronghold. Go up to the Lord. Go up there with like David did, bowing and repenting of your sins, getting right with God, seeking justice, seeking righteousness, seeking the corrective of behavior on your life that needs to be made, whatever it is, confessing that sin, straightening your life up, learning to love, learning to prefer, learning to fill God's will in your life. Go up to the stronghold. And the stronghold is not the priest, it's not the prophet, and it's not the prince, and it's certainly not your enemy. The stronghold is Christ Himself. Go up to the stronghold. David spared the life of his enemy by walking away, walking out of the cave. Jesus Christ has not just spared us, but has saved us. Not by walking away, but by laying down His own life. And it's that grace for us, His enemies, that we celebrate in this meal. And so with great confidence and with joy, let's stand together and offer these words of assurance and great thanksgiving as we approach this tangible remembrance of Christ's sacrifice for us. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks unto our Lord God. It is right and good and a joyful thing, always and everywhere, to give thanks unto you, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and everlasting God.
Father, as we come to this, your table, we pray that you would feed us with the powerful presence of your Spirit, reminding us of the beautiful, gracious, atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us, created in your image and yet your enemies by our sin. Feed us and strengthen us, assure us and give us joy. Transform us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, your Son, through this meal that we celebrate. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. This meal is a meal that Jesus first gave to his disciples. It's a meal for believers. It's a meal for those who are children of God by repentance and faith. And now we celebrate it at Christ's command as his church, given from the church to the assembly of the saints. If you are here this morning and you name yourself as a believer in Jesus Christ, a child of God, one who has repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their stronghold, as Ron alluded to, we invite you to come and participate in this meal. If you're here this morning and you're not sure that you're a Christian or you know that you're not a Christian, we invite you to remain with us, but simply not to come forward and partake of the elements. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread and after he had given thanks, he broke it saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, Christ took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim Christ's death until he comes again. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Hallelujah. These are the gifts of God for you, the people of God. So come take them in remembrance that Christ died for you. Feed on him in your hearts by faith and drink remembering Christ's blood has been shed for you. I invite the elders to come forward and receive the elements. And those of you can file forward down the center aisle to receive from the elders this meal of the Lord.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.